Hey, everybody, back for another episode of Securiosity. But first, I want to talk to you about DC Cyber Week. DC Cyber Week, presented by CyberScoop, of course, is the nation's largest cybersecurity festival. This citywide festival drives thousands of the most influential cybersecurity leaders to Washington, D.C. for one week to exchange best practices, collaborate, and find ways to achieve common goals. Now, a big part of DC Cyber Week are the community events. They really are the heart and soul of DC Cyber Week, and the community events are your chance to meet top leaders in the cyber field, sharpen your skill set, and expand your professional network. Sign up for as many events as you can and get the most out of this year's festival. For more information, check out dccyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for June 7th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, ready to bring you the world's best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. The Eternal Blue Saga looks like it's coming to a standstill, and we can talk about how Congress has gotten involved and why Baltimore seemingly hasn't engaged with any help from the feds. In our interview, we talk with Tiffany Kleeman, CEO of Distill Networks. Huge news from Distill this week as they were acquired. We will talk to her about what comes next and how Distill is helping combat all those bad ad fraud bots we keep hearing so much about. Yeah, Distill was one of many in another week just filled with business news. We told you before on CyberScoop that the great cybersecurity consolidation was coming and now it's seemingly here. So we will dive into the moves that happened this week that further cement the great cybersecurity consolidation. But first, let's get to all that other hacking news. So it looks more and more like Internal Blue had nothing to do with what happened in Baltimore. Representative Dutch Rupperschberger, whose district contains the NSA, said there's no evidence a tool developed by the NSA played a role in the ransomware attack. Additionally, Senator Chris Van Hollen told CyberScoop after a briefing that there was no evidence that the NSA tool has been a part of the incident. However, Van Hollen said he plans to nudge the Department of Homeland Security and Baltimore to work together better moving forward, since his impression is that the city has not yet gotten really engaged. Great, it looks like the government saved face on this one. Yeah, um, multiple, multiple reports that uh, the initial New York Times story saying that Eternal Blue was used to spread the Robin Hood ransomware in Baltimore just th- that didn't really check out. It looks like the New York Times got some bad uh, information and. Everybody from the NSA to now congressmen, um, you know, representatives, senators that have been briefed on it just say that that is not truly what happened. I have also talked to some people. I have my own sources that back that up that are not on the, the policy side that are actually closer to what's going on in Baltimore that have told me that it Eternal Blue did not turn up in this attack at all, which I mean, it kind of, you know, puts the nail in the coffin for me about, you know, the the noise around this eternal blue exploit being a part of it. But, you know, there's still the story of the fact that Baltimore has been hit really, really hard. hard yeah. with it. I think that we're now into the third or fourth week of them not having ways of people uh, filing uh, tax payments or having to do real estate payments, or there's still a lot of transactions that are being done by hand. And it looks like Baltimore is just going to have to spend tens of millions of dollars digging out from this. And it's really surprising to me that it seems like they haven't reached out to DHS or even some other people inside the NSA for like 
help in fixing it. Like they just seem to be wanting to point fingers and not really use uh, uh, the federal government's resources in order to patch things up. And it just seems so, so odd that at this point it's, you know, it's such a crippling attack and yet they're, they're trying to figure stuff out on their own. It doesn't seem logical at all. You know, my guess is that it's just so overwhelming and they really don't know what to do. Um, so the easy thing here is to point fingers. Uh, and it's also the other easy thing to do, of course, is to sort of do nothing. Um, I'm sure they're doing something, but by not reaching out to the NSA, I think that's a, a big mistake. But also, you know, clearly fingers are pointed towards the NSA. So it might be a little bit hard to sort of walk it back and, and go in and have the conversation. But I think this is just sort of um, worrisome countrywide because, I mean, look, I can't imagine that that every city and every state is more secure than Baltimore was. So we should be taking lessons learned from this at, at the local and city level and state level to make sure that our networks are more secure. Right. Uh, you bring up a good point. This this isn't the first time we've seen this happen. We saw this happen in Atlanta. We saw this happen in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We saw this happen in San Antonio, Texas. And there have been smaller incidents across the entire country. So and what's clear from those incidents to me is two things. One there needs to be more information sharing. And I don't mean information sharing on a technical level. While I mean that would help, that's not what I mean. I mean it from like a policy and a remediation and a and a uh, bureaucratic standpoint. Like why haven't phone calls been made to Atlanta, to Allentown, to San Antonio to be like, hey guys, can you kind of give us some pointers here on on what to do as far as, you know, the allocation of resources or who we should be calling or who do I need to pull in from outside the IT teams? Like, how, how do we speed up the process of recovery here? But not only that, it speaks to the, the, the second part of what I'm getting at is that it, it is extremely, extremely telling that city after city after city, that's not just, you know, some small rural town is considerably just uh, at a loss for how to deal with this stuff and how to protect against it. And you have to wonder whether it's uh, a, a federal thing, whether the, the, the federal government can step in, uh, the National Governors Association. Like, I don't know what group, but there needs to be more done in order to educate these cities on what really needs to be done with protecting their IT infrastructure. Not every city is New York City, and they're not all going to have cyber commands. So what do we do? What do we take away from that? And what are the questions that need to be asked? And what are the solutions that need to go in place uh, outside of the technical parts that can stop this from happening on a regular basis. I mean, it also comes down to workforce, right? So, and if you look at it sort of a city level, the pay as a city employee is not going to be very good. And my guess is that people who can really solve these problems and fix infrastructures and, and protect infrastructures and make it work probably hit a pay scale that's beyond what the city pays and probably is beyond what the top officials in the city make. So I think it's just, it's, it's tough from that standpoint. And so my guess is they tend to hire um, very junior um, IT staff that, you know, doesn't know how to do this yet. I don't necessarily, I mean, I agree with you up until the point that they don't know how to do this. I would imagine that they know how to do this and they probably have the answers. It just gets back to a budget thing too. Right. Like I'm sure that the the CISO and the CIO of Baltimore would love to turn around to the 
to the mayor or the city council or the chief financial officer and go, hey, can you give us you know, X amount of money to upgrade from Windows 7 to Windows 10? And can we get all new computers? And can we you know, try to get into a system where we're not dependent on our own data servers and let us move to the cloud and do all of that? I, 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 I think you're kind of talking about like one person though, right? Like, so maybe the the CIO or CISO for the the city is um, really great and well-paid, but my guess is, is the people that fall underneath are probably not well-paid and, and too low of a level um, for what it is they need to get done. Right, right. And uh, you're right that it funnels all back to the the workforce part of this equation. You know, if there were more people that were inside the the city level governments and, and the public sector overall that had that that not just had the technical uh, aptitude, but had the the, the political aptitude right. and the bureaucratic aptitude to get stuff pushed through, we might not be talking about this at all. So a new survey of the healthcare industry from Carbon Black found that the persistent threat of ransomware and an increase in the sophistication of hacks is top of mind for healthcare industry CISOs. Tellingly, nearly half of the surveyed organizations said they had encountered attacks where the primary motivation was destruction of data. A third of the surveyed organizations said that they had experienced counter-incident response in which an attacker fights back against defenders trying to evict them from a network. The survey comes on the heels of a breach of Quest Diagnostics, a laboratory which may have exposed medical data and financial information on nearly 12 million people. So, Jen, how behind the rest of uh, the economy do you think the healthcare industry is here? Because we just spend time talking about the public sector when it comes to uh, ransomware. How do you think the healthcare industry is faring? That's a great question. You know, I think... um just by based on you know startups that you see pop up i think it's it's behind obviously behind um our financial institutions but it's probably ahead of our city governments you know i think certainly people are thinking about this i think we've you know had a system for a long time where you had a paper medical record and data was it was sort of kept that way and you know, over time, and it's it's been in recent time that we've we've flipped to a, a different model where you've got electronic health records, um, and they're not um, well protected. And you know, as and obviously other medical devices are getting hacked into as well. And it's just not things that we've been thinking about um, until pretty recently. You know, you bring up a good point in that you say that the healthcare industry was probably ahead of the public sector. This is a rhetorical question. Why do you think that is? Honestly, again, I think it comes down to money. I think that they're able to spend a little bit more money um, on data, but also I don't have a choice. I mean, I could obviously move to a different state, but I don't really have a choice on how, you know, my data is protected about me when it comes down to like having to get a driver's license or or things like that. So it's not like I have another choice, but I do have a choice in a hospital system to choose. So if I don't like, for instance, um, um, how, you know, one hospital system with all the sort of doctors that sort of filter into that, if I don't like how they're protecting me and my data and and my health, I can just move to another system. Um, Right. You're getting you're getting at the point that I was I was going to make outside of money. 
it's the regulation. Right. The, the, there's the HIPAA and, and healthcare providers uh, have to deal with all of that. It's the regulation there. The regulation is forcing these companies and these healthcare providers to put in a layer of right. protection above what we're seeing in the public sector, which is the point I'm, I'm trying to make here is that I, I believe more and more regulation when it comes to data privacy is really what's going to be needed before we see sort of just baseline across all different types of sectors, whether it is the government, healthcare, financial, whatever. Um, the more privacy laws and the more privacy regulations you start to see go on the books, I think that we're not going to be able to ask these questions of how how bad is sector X. Right. But I think we're getting there. I feel like there's been changes made and I think we're slowly going to evolve to that point. Yeah, it's just that slowly part that bothers me so yeah, much. Yeah, I, I just don't think there's, you know, again, as I think about like a state level politics system, um, at least in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, you know, being a senator or house representative is not a full-time job, right? It's a stipend pay where you have a full-time job somewhere else. And so I think that um, you just can't be knowledgeable about all things. And so this is probably not an area where you spend a lot of time um, researching what policy should look like. It's a right. slower moving process. There's, there's, Sadly, I mean, there is bigger fish to fry when it comes down to like state level politics. So the decade long evolution of one Western African cyber criminal gang is a microcosm for how criminals scale business email compromise scams, according to new research from Agargi. The so-called scattered canary groups rise from a lone individual to dozens of operatives specializing in various aspects of fraud illustrates the enduring effectiveness of BEC scams, which rely on social engineered rather than fancy malware. Agargi's Crane Hazold, a former FBI analyst, told CyberScoop that much like a business, these groups grow over time as their profits increase. Greg, tell us more about these African groups. Yeah, so the African groups have gone beyond just, you know, the Nigerian prince email scams that get sent to uh, grandma and grandpa. Uh, hey, wait, it, did you ever send any money to a Nigerian prince? No, absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I always had at least that baseline of, of cybersecurity knowledge. Okay, I want to make sure. Right. Um, but no, the, the, the skills have been honed. Uh, this story, uh, you know, Agari found that in, in as of March in 2017, uh, Scattered Canaries members were fishing for enterprise credentials by spoofing, you know, a bunch of stuff that's used in organizations across the world, Adobe, DocuSign, Microsoft OneDrive. And then over the, once they started spoofing that, they went toward where the the global economy really works. I mean, you're talking, you know, your developed nations. You're they exclusively targeted businesses in the U.S. and Canada, and got over three thousand uh, account credentials just through phishing. I mean, that's when you hone your skills and you make it that easy, you, you can do a lot of damage. And business email compromise. You know, we hear these stories all the time where it's just a matter of just spoofing the the design or the the user interface or the the cascade cascading style sheets on websites where you fool 
the top executives to sign off on payments. And next thing you know, you have a very legitimate check. And then what are you going to do when, you know, uh, accounts payable goes, uh, why did we just pay 400 grand to this, this random bank account in Nigeria? Like what, what is happening right now? So it, it shows that, you know, sometimes the most effective scam techniques are also just the most mundane. Yeah. I mean, we just have to be watching everything and, and verifying everything. Yeah. Um, this is why, you know, using products, I know Cofence had some research that just came out this week that talked about phishing as well. And, um, if, you know, whether it's Cofence or some other, um, MSSP, if they have the ability to turn on, you know, uh, some tools that help your company against phishing, I don't understand why you would not do it at this point. Like just, just put a tool in your company's email inbox and, and, hope for the best because <laughs> business email compromise is such an easy way to watch a lot of money go right out the door. Oh, for sure. I've actually received an email um, that looked like it was from someone else in the organization asking me to buy um, gift cards. Yep. That's one. That yeah. is one way they tried they to launder it. Yeah. They wanted me to buy a gift card for each member of our staff, but they wanted me to go ahead and send them the, the codes on the back and, um, as proof that I purchased them. Yep. Which is really. Yep. That's, that is, and that is a different scam altogether, but it falls into the, the business email compromise is it instead of just, you know, wiring stuff because the banks, you could call up a bank and say, no, that's a fraudulent charge. Make like, give us the money back. And then it's on the bank. Um, now instead it's, it's laundering through an iTunes gift card or like, an Xbox gift card or things right. like that. Yeah, you see that all the time with this stuff. Uh, the, there are many, many ways uh, to uh, move money that aren't just wires or cryptocurrency or things like that. It's it's really a scam that it, it's not sophisticated in the sense of a technological standpoint, but it's something that has been well honed and well thought out in how to use the ways we all store money in order to funnel money from legitimate bank accounts to criminal bank accounts. Right. So hackers in 2017 surreptitiously installed malicious software on Android phones by inserting code in apps and programs built by third-party vendors, Google confirmed in a blog post on Thursday. The novel hacking technique was designed to load a customer's phone with spam and unauthorized advertisements all before it even arrived in customers' hands. When phone manufacturers wanted to include features not approved by the Android open source project, like a face unlock program, Google said those companies may hire unauthorized third-party companies to build the features for them. In this case, a malware group known as Triada devised a way to exploit those third parties to pre-install backdoors onto the Android devices. Wow. Jen, what would it take at this point for you to legitimately trust an Android phone? I'm not sure I can at this point. I mean, that's that's pretty big. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. There have been some stories that have come out in the past week or two saying that Apple security has gotten so good that you don't know if you've ever been hacked on an Apple phone. And that's actually a detriment where you could have somebody sitting on your phone and never realize it at all. And then you hear stories like this and I go, is it really that bad that Apple has shut everything to the point where you would never know if you were hacked? Like I would rather deal with that than I would buying a phone and not knowing anything about it right out of the box, except that 
it, it may have been compromised before I even bought it. Like it's it's uh, Russian roulette from the moment that I would want to purchase an Android phone. No, thank you. Like, how does this, I, 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 I can't believe stuff like this continues to come to light. I mean, I'm happy it comes to light, but I can't believe that this is the ecosystem that we're dealing with. And then we see stories that say, well, Apple might be insecure as well. There's no, there's just no way. There's no way the two are on the same plane. It's astounding to me. No, I mean, I, I just don't think it's close. I, I've never had a reason to believe that my Apple device out of the box um, was compromised with a backdoor. I mean, maybe maybe over time I've installed um, apps that maybe had something wrong with them or I've clicked a link accidentally in the email. I mean, that would be my fault, um, but not out of the box like an Android. Yeah, uh, it's it's this is this is a pretty, pretty damaging story to to the whole Android ecosystem. Not great. For sure. So thieves who have spent more than two months lurking inside the networks of an Eastern European bank last year use the same techniques as the infamous criminal gang known as Fin7, according to Bitdefender. Researchers uncovered details about a bank heist in which hackers patiently collected employee credentials and other data meant to help them access banking info and control ATM networks. These findings coincide with the previous researcher's suggestion that Fin7 is a relatively large group and perhaps a dozen individuals who have been able to weather law enforcement pressure while updating their hacking tactics. Greg, is the evidence that Fin7 hasn't gone away? Yeah, uh, it looks like that. And we kind of talked about that when those arrests happened a, a couple weeks ago in that Fin7 seemed to be, you know, of the opinion that, okay, we don't care. <laughs> like, if you say these people are the masterminds, whether they are or aren't, we still have, um, you know, some infrastructure when it comes to committing these crimes. We still have this malware and we're going to do what, we want to do with it. Now, the the research that we wrote about, this was before those two guys were picked up in Europe. So they were clearly just hammering away without any impunity before the arrests were even made. But I mean, it just goes to show that uh, this malware is pretty powerful. There's more than one group using it, and they're going to continue to use it even after arrests and continue to steal money with impunity. So pretty powerful malware, be on the lookout for it. And the criminals are still active. So we highlighted this at the top of the show, but it was just another absurd week in the business of cybersecurity. Let's talk about some of the things uh, that happened. First off, security vendor Imperva acquired bot mitigation company Distill Networks to bolster its services uh, Imperva announced Tuesday that its executives have signed a deal to fold this still into Imperva's already big security platform. And the company told CyberScoop that while the transaction has not closed, that things should remain as business as usual for a while. And the terms of the deal were not disclosed. Then Cisco announced this week that it has acquired Centrio a company based in Lyon, France, that provides device visibility and security solutions for industrial control systems networks. So ICS continues to stay hot. I think this is the third straight week that we're talking about an ICS company either getting erased or being acquired. Speaking of acquisitions, again, Elastic, the company behind Elastic Search and the Elastic Stack, uh, 
announced that it has entered into an agreement to buy Endgame for $234 million. And then on the private side, uh, venture capital side, actually, uh, Sentinel One announced Wednesday that it had raised $120 million in a Series D funding round led by Insight Partners. Samsung Venture Investment and Next Equity also participated in the round, along with a bunch of others, Third Point, Red Point, and Data Collective. This news follows last week's announcement that Inside Partners had acquired Recorded Future for $780 million, and Sentinel One, who sees CrowdStripe as their main competitor, told CyberScoop that they are eyeing a possible IPO. And speaking of CrowdStrike and IPOs, CrowdStrike actually upped their IPO share price range from $19 to $23 to somewhere between $28 and $30, which means the valuation has gone from about $4.5 billion to approximately $6.2 billion. Jen, the money stays hot. It does. Yeah. I mean, I think... um... You know, you mentioned earlier in the episode, but basically that these companies are going to start folding together. They just have to. Um, you know, I've been saying from the start that that these companies, um, there's so many. The space is so noisy. There's so many venture back companies. There's so many companies that look like $10 million in revenue, um, but have more and more competitors popping up. So it's harder to get market share. And, you know, from a customer perspective, because there's so much noise, you don't know what to implement. And so it makes a lot more sense to see companies sort of roll up together, um, maybe pull in a solution into another solution so that you can just sort of go to one company and and get a lot of your needs taken care of. Um, but also just it just helps the industry in, in general. Um, just still... Um, was a company that that CIT funded um, early on. We we wrote a check before they went to TechStars, so we've been following it for a really long time. So it's been really interesting to watch them on their journey because you know certainly they were you know always going after bots, and when they first started, bots were not something talked about in the news. It's not something that people were really thinking about yet. Yeah. Um, the, the, the consolidation thing, I mean, this is it, it's here. We wrote an article back in November about how it just had to happen. And that was tied to, uh, the rumors that, uh, Toma Bravo was going to buy Symantec and the BlackBerry yeah. Silence acquisition. I mean, that I guess was really ahead of its time, I guess, relatively. Um, but it is, I, I'm, kind of shocked that it has just all piled on over the last uh, three weeks. Um, it really is fascinating to see this kind of happen. It really happened so fast. Um, the, 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 the money is is staggering. And um, the fact that I, I would not be surprised if we're continuing to talk about this for another three weeks, if not longer. Like uh, Black Hat's going to be so interesting because you're going to see just like 20 companies that were, you know, sort of big players at Black Hat um, just kind of folded into the other big players, too. So uh, fascinating thing to watch. Definitely interesting to watch. You know, you look at the cybersecurity spend in terms of venture capital. I mean, what we saw last year, the year before, we saw 416 new funds that hadn't invested in cybersecurity before decide to invest in a cybersecurity company. I don't think we've seen... Um, sort of action like that before the big dot com bubble. Yeah, um, <laughs> you would know better than I uh, than I would because I have only been following this space for so long. But um, I would say I've been following this space for like five years, and I can't remember it 
ever being this aggressive in terms of the the amount of business news that is coming out. So it's it's clear that yeah, the the, the markets are working as they work. It's just it's right. what's going to happen. It's what's going to continue to happen because look, we've had conversations on this show for months now in that just the market space here it's, it was always going to run out of market space. Like all of these companies weren't going to be able to self-sustain on their own. So this is just, you know, uh, uh, the reality behind those conversations. Let's continue the conversation. We actually sat down with Tiffany Kleeman, who is the CEO of Distill Networks. Tiffany joined us shortly after she inked the deal with Imperva. We talked about, you know, what is the future of Distill moving forward? And then we got into a conversation about how Tiffany talks to her customers about what they need to do when it comes to bots and how bots are advancing and how ad fraud really is uh, the big player in this space right now. Check it out. Joining us today is Tiffany Kleeman, CEO of Distill. Tiffany, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jen. So before we get into your exciting news, tell us how you got into cybersecurity. It was a a very strange route indeed. Uh, I had been a Coast Guard officer uh, after I graduated from the academy for a number of years operational in the Coast Guard, and then had an opportunity to become the deputy chief of staff for Richard Clark. Uh, at the White House in a new office called uh, Critical Infrastructure Protection uh, and Cybersecurity. It was prior to the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security, but just after 9-11, and and ended up um, loving the world of cybersecurity uh, and uh, made a choice to, to stay in that industry from that point on. And so it's led up to this point this week, which you guys had some huge news. Congrats on uh, the acquisition uh, by Imperva. I would love to hear more about it, starting with how do you see Distill fitting into what Imperva is doing moving forward? Because I know Imperva has had some changes to the way that they are constructed and, and their ownership. So I would love to hear from your perspective how Distill fits into what's going on there. Yes. Well, thanks so much uh, for the congrats. We are super excited um, to be a part of the Imperva family. Um, it is true that Imperva has gone through a pretty interesting transformation and are still on that journey. Uh, Imperva has been around for quite some time and a market leader actually in WAF and DDoS and now RASP also um, since the acquisition of Previty back about 10 months ago. Um, But they actually made um, a transition uh, to go private. They had been publicly traded. Toma Bravo just purchased them um, about five months ago. Uh, Now they are a private entity. Um, And in order to really round out their portfolio um, and really become the leader in web application security writ large to include advanced bot mitigation, um, they made a decision to go aggressively uh, after us, uh, and uh, we couldn't be more excited about the the partnership going forward. So, talk to me a little bit about what you are seeing in the industry overall, because this news comes at a really, really interesting time. Over the past two or three weeks, we've seen just a ton of money flying around in the cybersecurity industry. Whether it has been private equity firms gobbling up companies, acquisitions. A lot of really 
big um, raises in the VC space and even some IPO uh, news. It seems like the the great cybersecurity like consolidation. It really seems that we're at like an inflection point right now in cybersecurity. Uh, do you think that that's going to change, or, or, or do you think that's going to continue? How do you see the market really moving forward? Well, I do see um, some interesting things happening, and um, it is an exciting time in in information security writ large. Um, I, I do think that there is going to be a continued um, interest to um, consolidate. Right, there are so many players out there today, so many uh, point product uh, solutions. And a whole heck of a lot of startups out there, which is fantastic. A lot of innovation that's underway. But as we talk to customers, and it's an ongoing trend that you even hear from the analyst community, you hear CISOs and CIOs and others in the space um, increasingly talking about just how saturated the market is and, and the product fatigue that they're experiencing and the fact that they just can't you know, put it all together, um, the amount of resources it takes just to manage each of these point product solutions is is pretty becoming overwhelming um, for our customer base. Um, it, similarly, and it's what we heard from customers, they've, they've been um, consistently telling us, hey, we love Distill, we love what you do for us to protect our uh, websites, mobile apps, and API from automated attacks. But we would love to be able to have Distill integrated more seamlessly into uh, our ecosystem, right? We'd love to have you integrated more effectively into uh, a WAF or into our CDN service or into some other platform that is complementary to bot mitigation. And so, again, you know, I think, you know, our um, the acquisition um, of Imperva buying us is indicative of kind of that trend line, right? Integrating um, great point product solutions more seamlessly uh, into platforms and service offerings. So what else would decision to um, go through an acquisition versus raising another round of capital or just continuing to grow it yourself? Yeah, we were at an, a very inter- interesting uh, pivot point. Um, we were on a path. We had reduced our burn pretty significantly. We were growing revenues, um, although not at the rate that we wanted to be growing. And again, part of that being because we were not part of a larger platform that mm-hmm. customers increasingly were asking for. And so um, rather than, you know, go forward and and, uh, conducting another raise, um, going through the process of a potential refinancing, um, you know, we made the decision um, to listen to our customers, listen to the market dynamics, listen to the analyst community um, and um, and and begin to listen more aggressively to the interests that were inbound. Uh, from various players um, in the space that were interested um, in Distill. So let's talk about that bot mitigation part that you were talking uh, about and that what Distill does uh, so well. Uh, How have you seen companies change their behavior as they become more and more apparent and they learn what 
these bots can do against their applications or against their enterprises? How have you seen enterprises sort of shift to the way that bots are attacking? Well, I think part of that has just been um, a process around education and awareness. Um, you know, like like many segments in in the in industry, um, there there were just a number of customers that just have not been aware of the bot problem, so to speak. Um, some some have been because the problem has been so aggressive and impacted their business so horribly that they've had to take actions. Um, and and implement um, technology solutions to help there. But there have been a number of customers in the larger mainstream market where they just haven't, although we have now begun to see the shift where we've moved from um, early adopters um, in an emerging space, crossing the chasm um, into you know these mainstream pragmatists who are, are really better aware of the situation and the problem set that they're dealing with and also recognize that, you know, um, just ignoring it or trying to solve it with an internal built kind of solution is not going to be sufficient. Bots have advanced pretty significantly um, in the last um, couple of years in particular, as have, you know, as is the case with a number of threats in cyberspace, you know, you know, we started with, you know, very nascent and simple viruses and worms and shifting to Trojans and then shifting to um, polymorphic, you know, threats, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the same evolution has occurred, you know, like with malware um, surrounding bots. Um, and, and I think that is one of the main reasons why, there is so there is so much demand now, and why the market is growing so significantly per per Forrester and Gartner. Uh, Forrester is even indicating that the bot market will outgrow uh, WAF in the next five years. Yeah, so you hit on something else I wanted to ask about. How are the bots actually getting smarter? Because obviously, as more and more companies get aware of this, they want to defend against it. So the attackers are going to try to change up. How do you see attackers changing up and how are bots getting smarter? Well, you know, the threat actors are getting smarter, right? They're leveraging. It's an arms race. They're, they're really becoming better aware of the technology uh, and how uh, different technologies are uh, protecting uh, customers uh, from these bots and they're reverse engineering it, right, to then try to get around the technology. Uh, we've deployed more advanced machine learning models as of late. Uh, we've begun to, to continue to layer in a defense in depth strategy around our technology so that if one part of our technology is unable to detect or stop um, a certain type of bot, um, another one can step in to make sure that that we do. Um, but no, no one is perfect, um, including ourselves. And so we've continued to invest a heck of a lot into um, our BDE team, our bot detection and efficacy research, to ensure that we can continue to stay ahead of the problem. In the past couple of weeks, um, ad fraud has been in the news, such a large number there, um, especially around um, bots 
um, sort of stealing all that ad space and directing people to different websites. What is this still doing um, to sort of protect consumers from that? Yeah, it's a hard problem to solve, but but we are helping to solve it. We do have customers in that space today uh, that are benefiting from our our technology to detect uh, and then protect against that particular use case. Although I will also say there are even more dramatic use cases than that, like um, account takeovers, right, that are impacting major businesses um, and the associated um, data, you know, once uh, an attacker can get in through a bot uh, and be able to steal all of that, uh, you know, PII um, or information, financial information or other types of information, whether you're a bank, whether you're an uh, retailer or commerce site, et cetera, et cetera. Um, We've even seen all sorts of use cases Um, um, uh, the airline industry is one that gets targeted very heavily with bots across many use cases, everything from account takeovers and login attacks, um, to, um, scraping, uh, and harvesting miles on loyalty programs, uh, for for financial gain and cybercrime to even utilizing bots to hold seats and redirecting customers to other places Uh, to purchase um, tickets, airline tickets. I mean, all sorts of use cases that are pretty nefarious um, that we're helping protect against. What's the worst you've seen? That's a great question. Um, I'd have to ask the analyst team uh, for that, but um, we do have some specific use cases, you know, more publicly uh, that we can speak about uh, where, you know, with some businesses, we've literally you know, heard from a CISO or a CIO or a head of marketing in some of these organizations that we're literally saving them a million dollars a day. Wow. Um, by, by protecting them against these types of attacks. So how do you communicate to your customers exactly how much bot activity is costing them? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Because you often have this, you know, this problem of being able to articulate the value proposition um, in security, right? Because it's like, oh, well, I've made you incrementally more secure. You know, what does that equate to from a financial perspective, right? From a risk perspective. And it's often hard to measure that. Um, Interestingly enough, we don't have as much of a problem around that because, we can very specifically point to more explicit use cases that tie directly to the business. You know, for example, you know, um, you know, uh, we have customers in the commerce space today that uh, rely almost entirely on their mobile application, right, to run their business, or a web application, you know, to run their business. And for every minute of downtime is a minute lost of revenue, right? Uh, bringing in revenue. You know, when right. you talk about Amazon, for example, a minute of downtime for them is worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? And so for us, being able to say we've protected against that thing in a proof of concept that we run with customers 
you know, can equate to real dollars, um, can equate to real downtime issues and being able to measure that um, more effectively. So on the flip side, how are you telling individual users or just people that are using your products, how can they spot these bots? It can be very difficult. Um, And to the naked eye, so to speak, to the general consumer, or even to many folks, you know, that, that uh, are in this business day to day, it's becoming increasingly harder to identify a human from a bot. Um, in fact, you know, there are bots now that look like they're utilizing mouse movements, right? Um, there are bot operators that have set up uh, captcha farms, with real individuals that sit in a room and all they do is, you know, um, solve for CAPTCHAs, right? Um, and, And so it's increasingly harder and harder to be able to detect, which is exactly why you need a solution like Distill, to be able to do the heavy lifting for you. We have over 200 different criteria and attributes that we look at at any one point in time to determine if something is human or bot, right? And then additional machine learning um, methodology built in so that over time, our technology is even learning uh, about the additional anomalous activity that we can better, so we can better detect bots as well. So then, Tiffany, how much behavior is changing or what behavior needs to change then when somebody detects a bot? Like, how can it just change instead of relying on technology to change an application or block traffic? I mean, what can really change as far as behavior is concerned when you need to stop bots? Well, I think that's the difficult part, right? Because this is not so much a social engineering problem like many security issues are. You know, there are a number of issues that you know, where we have just poor hygiene or poor consumer behaviors, you know, clicking on things they shouldn't be clicking on, you know, phishing attacks, et cetera, et cetera. In the case of bots, it's actually really difficult um, to be able to tell a consumer what they can and can't do. Um, You know, it's not a consumer's problem if there's fraudulent activity and something is purporting to be a human, but is truly a bot. You know, things like, um, you know, influencing um, the way we think about things, you know, around bots and elections, bots and, you know, um, being able to like or not like something, um, you know, those things affect humans, but there's no way for each individual to be able to determine, you know, if, if some application or you know, some election on the face of it or some other thing is being affected by bots. Uh, And that's fundamentally the biggest challenge that we have right now is we are almost entirely reliant uh, on technology to help us solve the problem. So Tiffany, we like to end our interviews on a random question. So our question for you is, if you were a hoarder, what would you hoard? <laughs> and we say with a caveat, oh my. You, you can't, you can't, hoard, this would be just something like just every day. You obviously can't hoard food because food would go bad. And you can't say money because of course, that's what everybody would hoard. I would hoard <laughs> money too. That's, that's what money's for. 
So with those two caveats, what would you hoard? <sighs> Gosh. Um, I can't say wine. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that, yeah, absolutely. Hey, it, it, it's your... Excellent. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go the alcoholic route uh, and definitely say wine. What type of wine? So... Uh, prefer reds. Okay. Uh, love Pinots, love Cabernet, Sauvignons, uh, typically drink a glass a night. So, uh, maybe go. sometimes more. Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> on the night of, uh, on the night of the signing of our acquisition, I definitely, uh, you know, had closer to a bottle. Uh, there we go. <laughs> Perfect. All right. I really was hoping for uh, cat statues or something <laughs> weird like unicorns, that. <laughs> unicorns and my little ponies. No, but uh, well, yes. Hey, that's fine. Okay. And I'll, I'll just take that to say that I bet your wine cellar is pretty impressive. So hopefully we get a look at it someday. Uh, Tiffany, thank you very much uh, for joining us and congrats again on the acquisition. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Have a great one. Thank you again to Tiffany for joining us. And Jen, uh, it's been a long and very, very successful cloud week. So I think I'm going to go partake in some of that wine that Tiffany was talking about. I mean, I feel like you should replace that with bourbon, but sure. I mean, whatever. We'll, we'll find something to, <laughs> to take the edge off. So everybody have a good week. Stay curious. Stay curious.